welcome. You're listening to Latin Waves with your hosts, Sylvia and Stuart Richardson. Latin Waves is more than just hot rhythms. This is a show about community, about creating a culture that is inclusive and based on fairness. Because everyone deserves dignity, respect, and has something to contribute. A new world is possible, and it all starts with us. You know, the whole criminal justice crackdown fits in in that it can both physically control large elements of the poor and keep their communities under surveillance and police occupation and also simultaneously ideologically control them by promoting a story of danger and threat and uh, moral failure and individual responsibility that explains away high rates of poverty as cultural phenomena rooted in individual failures to get up early and work hard, etc., etc. That's the voice of renowned author Dr. Christian Parenti. On this week's show, we speak to Dr. Parenti about the prison industrial complex and its relationship and growth with the rise of neoliberalism. So stay tuned. Someone who looks at the way uh, surveillance has a role in, in the capitalist society uh, is my next guest, Christian Parenti. Dr. Christian Parenti is the author of several books. His latest book is uh, Tropical Chaos, um, and we talked to him today about his last two books, Lockdown America and uh, The Soft Cage, which speaks about the prison system in North America. Thank you again for joining us. Uh, you're welcome. What Fire I, away. What are the questions? Wonderful. What, what do people not What do people not yet understand about policing and prisons in the United States? I've been, I've been having this conversation for nigh on 15 years now, and frequently there are the these resort to economistic answers coming from the left. The right, of course, says, "Well, you know, we ha- we're trying to regain order in a society riven by crime, et cetera, et cetera." But then the left resorts to these economistic answers about, well, it's private prisons and the exploitation of prison labor, and that's not really the explanation. I actually... Yeah. I, I actually am glad that you said that because I don't uh, hold either one of those positions. For me, being from Latin America, I, I seem to think, uh, or at least I feel, that there is a connection between the repressive uh, nature of prisons and the culture of neoliberalism. I think that the violence is a productive uh, force as yeah. well. And and well, you were you were you were in a minority of people who correctly apprehend how the thing works. That's exactly right. And it's not just the culture of neoliberalism, it's the actual economic policies of neoliberalism that produce poverty deliberately and also unintentionally. They produce it deliberately. There needs to be a high rate of unemployment to keep wages down, so there's an element of deliberate production of unemployment. You know, if any time uh, the economy gets going you know, too robustly, there's always concern about keeping the, you know, w- d- determining what the natural rate of unemployment is and and uh, taking efforts to make sure that there are always people, more people looking for jobs than there are people to fill jobs, lest wages start being bid up and cutting into the capitalist class, class's profits. And unemployment is also created unintentionally because you know, when you remove all the Keynesian social democratic forms of regulation and control, the business cycle is, you know, back back in full swing. And so you get increased volatility, you know, uh, more frequent 
bubbles and more frequent crashes. And in those crashes, as in the crash of 2008, and uh, which consist, you know, which carries on, there's the, you know production of massive amounts of unemployment, just sort of indirectly, unintentionally, you know, but as a result of the business cycle. So then the question is, in a capitalist society, if for the sake of keeping wages low, there must be unemployment. How are the poor to be managed physically, and how are they, as a category, as a political category, to be managed? I.e., how are they to be managed discursively? How are they to be described? How are they to be explained to themselves and others to make them politically vulnerable uh, to uh, unburden the state and the wealthy classes of any responsibility for providing for them? And so that's where the you know, the whole criminal justice crackdown fits in in that it can both physically control large elements of the poor and keep their communities under surveillance and police occupation and also simultaneously ideologically control them by promoting a story of danger and threat and uh, moral failure and individual responsibility that explains away high rates of poverty as cultural phenomena rooted in individual failures to get up early and work hard, et cetera, et cetera. Well, one of the important things I, I think that we need to uh, make is that uh, this culture of internalizes also in the population a sense of self-blaming. I would, I'd rather see that the prison system produces the criminal. You know what I mean? Like they're both self-constitutive, right? As long as we create this culture of uh, criminality or instead of looking at the root causes, which you just addressed, um, you know, the wealth inequality, the, the inequality, uh, the wealth distribution, you know, inequality, um, instead of addressing those issues, uh, we instead create this narrative that the victims themselves become um, self-censoring. Uh, you know, I mean, we we the, we ourselves start to think, well, he must he must have done something. So I wonder if you could talk about that relationship because I think that's where we're sure. stuck, right? And again, it, it works both physically and discursively. So you could say prison produces criminals in that it produces actual criminality. You know, if you go to prison, particularly when you're young, instead of going to school, instead of, you know, when you're being socialized, instead of learning a skill and learning appropriate social skills to operate in society and in the labor market, instead you, you learn how to operate in the criminal underworld, yes, prison definitely produces real criminality. People who come out, they're marked. It's harder for them to get, uh, you know, they're legally marked. They have a, a conviction. It's harder for them to get a job. They have less skills, et cetera, et cetera. You know, to put it in uh, mainstream parlance, you know, they have the equivalent of like a Rolodex of what? Of criminals, you know? So they, they know how to, you know, fence goods, sell drugs, whatever, whatever. So it produces actual cr criminality, but then it also produces the, the legal category of uh, criminality, whether or not one is an actual... Uh, doing moral harm or physical harm to others, you know, you you can wind up back in prison. And basically, it produces recidivism because the laws around uh, probation uh, and parole are, you know, incredibly uh, intricate and, and intense. And so it's very hard for people to be out on parole for very long and not violate their parole. And so... You know, in some states in the United States, 
you know, up to half of all the people entering prison are going in for parole violations. You know, it's usually not more than half. It's like, you know, in the high, like 40-something percent in major prison-holding states like Texas and California are going in for just routine violations, which is they, you know, they smoke some weed and they get drug tested and conditions of their parole are that they're not supposed to smoke marijuana and so boom back in for a year or whatever you miss a date with your parole officer back in so it produces prisoners by producing these these infractions and 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 producing you know sort of officially generated recidivism in which people really haven't committed important crimes i mean clearly no matter how you feel about marijuana and i know you guys generally up there in the canadian pacific uh, Northwest have a kind of civilized view of marijuana, but you know, I mean, even if one has some sort of backward view about marijuana and that it should be illegal, I mean, one would have to admit that missing a date with a parole officer is is itself not actually a crime. I mean, there's not that much harm done to society, but you know, that can land you back in state prison for a year in California or Texas or New York or Illinois. The prison produces actual social harm, actual criminal behavior, and it also produces the category and the legal mechanisms of recidivism, of just turning, you know, people who are no harm to others back into prisoners. I want to talk about an interesting relationship that I think, well, a person can be incarcerated for stealing a loaf of bread, which, um, you know, if someone was hungry, I would personally not consider that a crime um, in a world where so many are denied the basic essentials. But, uh, but a company can destroy an entire ecosystem and the entire livelihood of thousands of people and not be held criminal. Can you talk to this, um, to me, paradox? In some ways, it's not really a paradox, right? I mean, it, it's, it's a class society. Capitalism is a class society, and uh, the, the government is both a mechanism of social control and an arena of social struggle. So there is some democratic accountability. Uh, you know, the legislative branch of, of governments in the United States are definitely, to some extent, democratically accountable. Popular forces can have influence on shaping policy, and the history of progressive reform in the United States is that history of popular progressive forces through direct action and protest and strikes and elections and operating in office, changing the laws, creating decent policy. But, you know, at another level, fundamentally, the the state in a capitalist society is about reproducing the capitalist economic system, which has the capitalist class and the institutions that they operate through corporations at, at the heart of its agenda. And so, you know, th this sort of legal... Legal criminality is is part and parcel of the system, and uh, I mean it shouldn't be a surprise. It doesn't mean we should accept it, of course. But uh, yeah, this is this is what happens when corporations are allowed to write the laws. And so, you know, I'm sure most of your listeners understand how that works. It's just like the the privileges of vast economic power uh, deliver these sorts of benefits. Be one a rich individual able to, um, you know, hire decent lawyers and delay, 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 and beat uh, some charges, or whether it's an institution that's 
such as BP, you know, getting away with hiding the evidence of, of the damage they've created in the Gulf due to their oil spill and negotiating what will probably turn out to be a penalty that's really, you know, a fraction of the overall cost to the government and the communities that depend on the ecosystem of the Gulf. And, of course, you can never actually, at a certain level, put uh, a true economic value on on a, an ecosystem. But, you know, to the extent that large parts of the regional economy depend on that ecosystem, you know, the damage is going to be far greater than than what BP is, you know, eventually going to pay out through all of this. So, you know, this is this is what it appears to be. I mean, and I don't really, in my book, I don't really talk about white-collar crime. And I also don't talk about political violence, because those, to me, don't really require that much explanation. They are what they appear to be, large corporations using money to bend the law in their favor so they don't have to go to jail, pay fines, et cetera, et cetera. So, too, with political violence. Remember once, when some talk you know, based on Lockdown America, a, a former political prisoner asked, why don't you deal with political prisoners more? I said, well, because it appears, it is what it appears to be. I mean, why were why were the radical left, um, you know, armed elements of the 60s put in jail, hunted down by the FBI and put in jail? Because they challenged the state with violence. I mean, what is there to explain? You can then decide whether you think that's effective. You can decide whether you like their politics or don't like them, but like, what is what is mysterious about that? It is what it appears to be. A group of people challenged the state, and the state, with its overwhelming power, fought them and won and crushed them and used the prison system and the criminal justice system to do that. But prison, general, you know, general prison population, it's not so clear. Why are there 2.3 million people in prison and, you know, upwards of 6 million people under the direct supervision of the criminal justice system, either out on parole or probation, having to, you know, take drug tests and check in daily or check in weekly or wear electronic monitoring bracelets, et cetera, et cetera. Why, why all of this? Um, and why did, it, why did this buildup begin in the 1970s and go through to now? Why were, were prison rates generally, the rates of incarceration generally stable from the end of the Civil War through to the 60s, and then suddenly there's this huge explosion. And so that is not as self-evidently apparent. You know, it's, it's driving causes. So that's what I tried to explain. And it's, as you said in the beginning, you know, it's linked to the shift away from Keynesianism, away from a sort of burgeoning social democracy in the United States, rooted in the New Deal and Johnson's war on poverty. And a shift away from that towards neoliberal economic theory, uh, you know, out with Keynes, in with Hayek and Friedman, and the idea that the state should remove itself from the economy. Of course, this idea is then violated in times of crisis and banks are bailed out, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, the theory is that the state must remove itself from economic activity, and first to go is like, you know, social spending on, on all of the programs that support the working classes, assistance for health care, education, job training, et cetera, et cetera. And why was there that shift beginning in the late 70s and really taking off beginning in 1980 with the election of Ronald Reagan? It has to do with the fact that the world 
capitalist system in the 1970s faced a profit crisis. And from the end of World War II until the 1970s, the golden era of world capitalism, you saw across the West rising wages, a rising standard of living for the working class, at the same time that there were rising taxes, high rates of growth, and also really robust corporate profits. And so corporations and the capitalist class were okay, more or less, with the Keynesian compromise because they could afford it. They could still make really quite record rates of profit. Those profits, the sort of average across the economy after-tax profit rates, peak in the mid-late 60s and then decline precipitously into the early 70s, and that's when there's a rethink starting in 73 that really is a shift away from Keynesianism towards neoliberalism. So what was the cause of that profit crisis? It was basically that the world capitalist economy had finally recovered economically from World War II, that the devastation of World War II was so profound that it basically took a generation to rebuild the other two poles of world capitalism, Europe and Asia, centered around Japan. And once that recovery was sort of mature and those core capitalist economies were built out, you had a classic crisis of overproduction, a crisis of overaccumulation. There was too much capital, too much money to lend, too many factories to produce blue jeans, washing machines, whatever else, electronics, and not enough demand for it, unless there was going to be some sort of radical kind of like deepening of the, the Keynesian compromise uh, and an acceptance of low profit rates. The, the, the choice facing the capitalist class to restore their profit rates was to attack the working class so that the, the portion of the general social surplus produced by the economy as a whole that went directly and indirectly through, as wages and as benefits and social spending to the working classes, that had to be reduced so they got less so the capitalist class could get more thus to restore profits, and that's exactly what the program of neoliberalism is and was. Cut tax rates on the highest income earners, cut corporate tax rates, allow for an expansion of loopholes, etc., etc., facilitate the upward redistribution of wealth, and attack directly and indirectly all the facets of power of the working classes. Attack labor. So, you know, that's what Reagan did. First thing he did was he comes in, he fires the air traffic controllers union, 11,000 um, people went on strike and he fired them and he was able to do this because actually a lot of them worked at government facilities and you know, then stacked the National Labor Relations Board with people who were totally hostile to, to labor and those are the direct assaults on working class power and then indirectly you know, there began this whole discourse of the culture of poverty uh, that you know the, the kind of racist um, myth-making and baiting about welfare queens, etc., etc. And so the whole population, not the whole population, but large parts of popular opinion really turned against the poor, uh, turned against this new kind of imagined image of the poor as lazy parasites extracting unearned income from the, the hard-working masses. And so you get this sort of perfect stand-in. I mean, it's actually, the actual rentier class collecting dividends fits the, the, you know they are the parasites essentially and instead 
you know, and and the working classes do experience this this extraction of uh, from their labors, but then they are taught to falsely imagine that this is going to welfare queens and and lazy people in the ghetto, et cetera, et cetera. And so there was like then a kind of actual popular consent built around the project of militarization, repression, incarceration of the inner cities, the highways, and increasingly all of America. I mean, this country is so over-policed, it's ridiculous. So there we are. We're still in the neoliberal moment. And, um, there, there, you know, there were moments where this was, uh, right before 9-11, there was definitely a, a rethink was underway. And it was creeping into sort of elite opinion-making institutions like the New York Times and NBC, you know, where we're reporting on on the criminal justice system in, in very, you know, not politicized Marxist terms, as I just laid out for you, but, in, you know, very, very critically, uh, you know, about the human rights violations, et cetera, et cetera. And you actually saw incarceration rates in the U.S. begin to plateau and dip right before 9-11. And then, in the name of the war on terror, we get a whole new round of fear and paranoia and massive, massive federal largesse to any and all state and local police institutions to buy new equipment for surveillance, incarceration, and policing. And so, you know, the situation in a lot of America is that the schools are totally underfunded and the cops have more gear than they know what to do with. I want to talk, though, about the the sustaining uh, forces behind it, because uh, while we understand, and thank you for making those points very clear, um, the relationship between this war on terror and the insecurity that it creates in the population, the way that people self-surveillance themselves and perhaps do not resist when they would otherwise, right? Because you create this culture of fear and everybody's running scared. And when we're all scared, well, um, business goes on as usual. Facing that fact, people in Latin America, we're seeing it more and more in Europe, we've seen it in other parts of the world, in Africa, are rising up and standing up. And uh, I wonder if you could comment on this, because it seems to me that within the capitalist system, we're always going to be back to this, you know, three steps forward, ten steps back, right? We get Keynesianism, then we get neoliberalism. Um, you know, the next stage, uh, right now, we have a world where these practices of um, the war on terror, the war on drugs, are being systematized. So there's this interchanging of information, interlinking. Um, they're united. What's it going to take for us to unite our efforts and resist this? That's the key question, and I really don't have an answer. I don't, I don't have an answer to, like, well, what social movements need to do is X, Y, Z. I really I do not, I do not know. Uh, but I can say that I'm hopeful. I mean, I guess there's one thing one thing I could add, but first of all, let me just say I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very hopeful about this moment of protest, and I don't know what the the correct thing for social movements to do is. That's that those are those strategies and tactics have to be worked out by the people in specific places, uh, in you know, engaged in real specific struggles. But one thing I would say, as uh, you know, an intellectual, I mean, my job is—I mean, I've been an activist, but I'm—you know—I I don't deign to sort of claim the claim that mantle. I'm not really an activist anymore. I mean, I'm a scholar. I teach at a graduate institute and write books, and I'm a reporter. And it's like, so one thing I would say is, I think we really have to take ideas and history seriously. I'm increasingly 
disturbed by how little history is in curriculum. I'm also increasingly disturbed by the role of technology. There's a whole kind of techno-bureaucratic enclosure of education, and people are increasingly concerned with the form of things and not their content. And I think that one major problem that the American, the U.S. left faces is a kind of a lack of intellectually robust engagement with political economy and history, and that we too often resort to sort of moral explanations, individualistic categories, sort of methodological individualism to explain problems. We seek direct economistic explanations for things, and then that mentality lends itself to conspiracy theories that can sometimes be really wild and out there and really not helpful. And that the whole practice of analyzing and criticizing capitalist society and political economy requires, you know, a, a, a kind of thinking that we generally don't do. And part of it is that there's a, a very uh, sort of utilitarian mentality in at least down here, the side of the border. People want to know what, I mean, what information is useful. What should we do about this? Let's critique this in a way that's actionable now. That's all good, that kind of tactical um, knowledge. But we also need to have a kind, you know, a deeper critique of the society. And that's not easy to do. That requires study and requires specifically reading history and thinking about institutions about the large patterns in history, about the large long-term patterns of political economy, and to think amorally, you know, have one's ethics and morals clear, but when you approach a problem, think totally amorally about it. If you don't find the evidence that you want, accept it, confront it, move on. And that's getting back to my, my original comments. People look at this prison thing, and they're like, oh, it must be private prisons. Oh, it's prison labor. It's like, it's not. There are only 7% of beds are being run by private prisons. There's, you know, very few prisoners actually work for private corporations. Many of them work for state corporations, but that's about managing prisons. That's about making prison look efficient. The military makes stuff in federal prisons. It would be much cheaper for the military to buy that stuff on the open market. It's not about money-making. You know, yes, there are interests that make money off of prisons. Yes, they lobby for repressive legislation. But all of this was not produced by that alone. Those, those parasitic interest groups are actually much more produced by the policy shift than the reverse of them having the private prisons and the guards having produced this profound, massive, now, you know, 35-year-old shift in U.S. criminal justice policy. So... You know, moving away from economistic and moralistic explanations to think more historically and amorally, and that doesn't mean you, you act immorally, but just to think really, really harshly, clearly about stuff. I think that's one thing that we could do better and do more of. Now, as for the rest of it, I defer to the comrades who are taking all the risks and, you know, devoting so much time to all this meetings and organizing, and I applaud them tremendously. 
Thank you so much for being with us. My guest is Dr. Christian Parenti. He's the author of four books, Lockdown America, Police and Prisons in the Age of Crisis, The Soft Cage, Surveillance in America from Slavery to War and Terror, uh, The Freedom, Shadows and Hallucinations in Occupy Iraq, and his latest, Tropic of Chaos, Climate Change and the New Geography of Violence. Thank you again for being with us. Thank you, Sylvia, and uh, talk to you again soon about Traffic of Chaos, hopefully. Yes, thank you very much, and talk to you soon. Look forward. Bye-bye. Bye. We have come to the end of our program. Latin Waves is a weekly syndicated program available to campus and community radios. Please visit our website, www.latinwavesmedia.com, to hear previous shows, connect to our media projects, and access other resources, or to support our efforts by making a safe PayPal contribution. I am Sylvia Richardson. Thanks for listening.